Right. Um, thank you all for tuning in and watching this. This uh, talk is derived from my current latest book, uh, Emotional Ignorance. Um, <clears throat> I'm talking about how emotions shape the way we perceive the world, because uh, they did. And the origins of this book are quite you know, in-depth and personal to me. It uh, was written uh, during the lockdown and pandemic. Uh, my father contracted COVID in the very first weeks of the pandemic and passed away from it a month later. And I had to endure the emotional fallout from that uh, in isolation. And obviously, I had no outlets or outputs and uh, ways to cope other than just writing about it. So this is uh, uh, me exploring my own emotional state, wondering why this is happening to me and therefore others, and why emotions do what they do, where they come from, why why they exist as they do. Because you know, emotions and science tend not to go together, but... Um, I turned out that's not a good thing because they are very important and we should uh, be more uh, embracing of them and their influence over us, up to and including the fact that uh, the way we actually perceive the world around us is heavily intertwined with emotions. It's not something we just ignore. They, they affect our very perception of reality uh, by the senses in multiple ways. So one of the first things I remember uh, up, uh, encountering was the impact of smell on emotions and memory. Uh, my father was uh, wore a lot of aftershave. It was his thing. His favourite aftershave was the Jean-Paul Gaultier uh, brand, which I picked from there. Uh, I have a bottle of it upstairs in my house, and I cannot really wear it because every time I put it on, I'm reminded of him and of the experience I went through uh, more vividly than any other time. And it's a well-known thing that smell is the sense which really evokes a strong emotional reaction, re-triggers powerful emotional memories. And the reason for that, uh, or the, the reason, no, the, the basis of this, to understand, you have to go back to the dawn of life on Earth, um, back in the primordial soup, as they call it. If you think about uh, you know, the very first life forms, they were basically just complex bags of chemicals in a complex chemical environment. Um, I think the chemicals and chemicals interacting. And when life forms like that, what they need to know about is changes in the chemicals around them. And what is that if not smell? Uh, the sense, the ability to detect changes in the chemicals of your environment. The smell was the first sense to evolve. Uh, but of course, once you can sense something, you need, you're taking in information, you need to be able to save the information or to do something with it. So smell uh, led to sort of a deep connection with memory, the evolution of memory. But you know, to be able to sense something and, re and remember it, uh, you need to also act on it and have some sort of response to it. That's what emotions are, really, sort of instinctive uh, reactions to things that happen to us. So, you know, smell, memory, and emotions evolve sort of in lockstep and, you know, dictated the very structure of our brains, which you can still see today. That's why this happens. So if you look at how the basic, you know, underlying system of the brain works, for many years, uh, the memory system was believed to be part of the olfactory system because the part of the brain which does deals with smell and part of, the brain, part of the brain which deals with memory and emotion are so close together, they look like the same thing in the early days of neuroscience. Now we know they're different, but what this does mean is that whereas other senses like sight and sound, and although we may rely on them more, they are taken in via our eyes and ears, but they are shunted into the memory system via the thalamus, right? In the center of the brain, which is like a hub for all information. Smell doesn't have that. Smell has a direct connection to uh, the memory and emotion systems. You know, it's like a VIP pass to an exclusive nightclub. It doesn't have to queue. It just goes straight in. And that's why smell uh, has uh, this power to trigger powerful emotional 
memories and very vivid ones, uh, but also it, it, it um, sort of dictated the structure, the very structure of our brains and our and the way they evolved. So you know, all of it's a, sort of the bedrock of that is smell and memory and emotions all linked together. And other senses sort of derived from that. So that's you know, at the very start, you know, emotions and senses were you know, clearly in, influencing each other. <clears throat> um, another thing me and my father sort of uh, were, were different about was um, uh, music, uh, the, the ability of sound, certain types of sounds to have an emotional reaction. Now, he loved all sorts of different music. I have more weird tastes. Like I am a very rare Wenger Boys apologist, as you can see from this photo here. Um, and not, to me, they're not just a cheesy 90s dance band from Europe. They are, you know, far more potent. I maintain that they are uh, secret eco uh, campaigners. I think the Wenger bus is a metaphor for nuclear fusion because it's coming and everyone will be happy. When's it going to get here? No one knows. It's just coming. No. And also, boom, 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 boom. I want you in my room. What is that? And I call for abundant nuclear power, safe energy to power our homes. But that's by the by. But I, you know, why do I have, why do I really have this sort of weird obsession with uh, late 90s cheesy dance band? Because um, I was a teenager at the time. I was in a very emotional uh, state of mind. And that's when uh, your memories, are, the more lasting memories are formed. The emotions have this effect on the memory system. And that's where the music of our teens is usually the music we prefer for the rest of our life. Because we have so much more strong emotional reactions to it. But it's not just that. I mean, the music affects us emotionally on multiple levels. There's the instinctive level, the fact that you know, rapid rhythms can make motivate us. That's why gym music is so up-tempo, something to do with, uh, you know, relating to a heartbeat in the womb, perhaps. You know, we hear the rhythm and we respond to it. Discordant noise or jagged sounds, very reminiscent of predator shrieks and growls and howls. And therefore, we react negatively to that, have a negative emotional reaction at a very fundamental level. But at the more complex levels, like when we hear music when we're in an emotional state, that music we associate with that emotion. And therefore, that music becomes uh, or has the ability to invoke that emotion in us. And if we can understand music on a complex cognitive level, like we can see the patterns and the rhythms of it, being able to decipher that and predict it does make us, you know, it triggers a positive emotional reaction. So music affects us mostly in multiple ways. But... Um, it also helps us in a, you know, in a strange roundabout way. And I found that out whilst uh, trying to process my own. Lots of music, like heavy metal, is designed to make you angry. And there's lots of sad music. And objectively, that's weird. Because these are emotions we don't like. We would try to avoid becoming angry or becoming sad. They are negative emotions. But then music which triggers these emotions is very popular. What happens is, is that it's sort of like, an, you have to accept that these negative emotions, although we try to avoid them, they are fundamentally useful, necessary for our brains to function, to maintain good well-being. Our brain has this full suite of emotional capabilities. And by only using or embracing one aspect of all that, we can become unhealthy or mentally unhealthy. Uh, but of course, it causes a bit of a problem because we need to ex experience negative emotions to make sure our brains capable of dealing with these, with these things, because the way our brains work, um, the part of the brain which is responsible for producing emotion is also the part responsible for processing it, for integrating the experience into our mental state and sort of mental model of how the world works. So you can't process an emotion if you don't experience it. So therefore, we have to experience negative emotions in order to work through them and get used to them, which is you know, unhelpful because we try to avoid experiences which trigger these emotions. 
that's where music and other art forms that trigger these emotions come in because they allow us to experience that certain sort of emotion in a safe, risk-free way. So when you listen to a sad song, it's not you. You haven't got to go through any particular trauma yourself to experience sadness. You are experiencing it vicariously. Heavy metal music, you're not, it's not something making you angry. It is the angry music which is triggering that emotion in yourself. And this gives our brain essentially a workout. It allows our brain to uh, activate those emotional processes which are necessary for maintaining good well-being. And you know, our brain sort of recognizes this. It goes, oh, good, no, I've experienced this emotion, uh, and I, I, I am better able to handle my own sadness or anger. And therefore, going forward, you're in a better place. You're more capable of dealing with these emotions. As many studies have shown, people who are fans of heavy metal are tend to be the least angry people because their brains are always being worked out and their ability to process to handle anger is better than the average person's because they have more experience with that, same with sadness. So, you know, em- embracing negative emotions via art forms is, like music, is a very helpful thing. And colour emotion of emotions. You know, a lot of emotions have a colour associated with them. We say things like red with anger or, you know, green with envy. Um, but also, it's hard to deny that despite them just being photons of different wavelengths hitting our retinas, Colors do have a certain emotional quality for us humans. Like red is often associated with danger. That's why stop signs are always red. They make us alert and we're attracted to them. Whereas greens and blues are quite calming. Hence, you have you know, medical smocks and outfits and uh, uniforms that are always that sort of color. You never get a medical you know, a, a, a hospital worker covered in red unless the surgery has gone spectacularly badly. And clashing colors can be quite unpleasant to look at, as the example I put down there. They are, you know, they, they shouldn't be. It's just like diff, just different ways that wavelengths of light, but they trigger an emotional response in us. And therefore, colors and emotions do seem to have a fundamental neurological link. But if you look into the actual science of it, it goes even deeper than that. That, you know, it's not just that certain emotions are linked to certain colors. It could, it seems to be, according to some evidence, that emotions are the reasons we can see colors at all. And for to understand that, you have to look at, the fact that uh, primates, uh, including humans, all have bald faces, which is not the norm in the mammal kingdom. All, most hairy mammals have hair covering their entire body. What makes? Uh, why would primates be the exception to this? Because primates, and particularly humans, are very good at communicating their emotions. We have the most elaborate facial expressions to do this. The primary source of emotional information from other species mates is the face in primates. Uh, but you don't need a bald face for that, because obviously the facial features can move around and see that fine. But what happens when you have no hair in your face is that you can see the colour change in the skin of the face when an emotional response happens. Like I said, when someone turns a bit green, it suggests they are you know, disgusted or unwell. If they turn red, they are aroused, which could be anger, you know, excitement, or anything like that. If they are, you know, their face goes white, they are afraid of something, because the blood has been shunted elsewhere for the fight-or-flight response. And that information is apparently very useful because it's not just the facial expressions, the colour we've evolved to recognise uh, in other, you know, in our in our species mates' faces uh, when emotions trigger a certain colour change in, uh, you know, in, when they undergo an emotional state. And human colour vision is particularly uh, sensitive to a certain range of colours. And that range appears to correspond almost exactly with the range of colours um, that manifests in the skin of our face when we are uh, experiencing a certain range of emotions. So basically, our eyesight, uh, our ability to see colour, evolved to better recognise 
the colors of someone's face when they are experiencing a certain emotion. So the ability to detect emotions was the thing that drove the evolution of our perception of color. Therefore, emotions are the reason we can see the colors we do. And therefore, you know, colors and emotions have a deep, 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 very fundamental link. And that's just three very profound ways in which emotions uh, have affected and dictated uh, the way we actually perceive the world and the very structure of our brains. So ignoring them or suppressing them is probably not the best approach. So as I say, that's all. Uh, you can read all that in the book. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you.